0: So how can we make this case? Well, one way we can do it is to point out to people that there's no essential difference between the embryos you once were and the adults you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage.
1: Arguments cannot be religious or non-religious. Arguments can either be valid or invalid, or sound or unsound substance view is the idea that from when you come into existence of fertilization until you die naturally, you are the same individual at every point in your life. So if it is wrong to kill you now, it was wrong to kill you then. Hello and welcome to Pro Life Thinking, a life training institute podcast in which we will talk about the abortion issue and larger issues related to bioethics in a way that's winsome, reasonable, and persuasive. I'm Clinton Wilcox, your host, and I'm joined by my co host, Aaron Brake. How's it going this morning, Aaron? Doing well, Clinton. How are you? Uh I'm doing pretty good. Um a little uh distressed by, you know, the information that uh, Tom Petty uh passed away a couple days ago. But uh, otherwise okay.
2: Yeah, I heard that's very sad.
1: Yeah, and of course the uh the recent uh Shooting in in Las Vegas as well, and our uh, of course our um, thoughts and prayers go out to uh, all the victims of the attack and everything. Yeah, a little bit of uh, depressing news, but otherwise uh, doing pretty good. Now We're advocates and voices for the unborn with Life Training Institute, whose mission is to equip pro life advocates to graciously and persuasively defend their pro life views in the marketplace of ideas and in our culture. We believe in the radical idea that it's wrong to kill innocent human beings, whether born or unborn, and we're here to equip you to defend that idea in a culture that celebrates a woman's right to choose. So today, we're going to be starting the first of a two-part series talking about the arguments of abortion choice philosopher Judith Jarvis Thompson. Uh, We're going to talk about bodily rights arguments today, and then we're going to talk about Thompson's essay, A Defense of Abortion, next week, where she talks about bodily rights arguments, but she also talks about some other arguments which she uses to argue for abortion as well. So today, we're going to be talking mainly about bodily rights arguments. And we're going to talk about a few different things a woman might mean when she says, my body, my choice. But the two main topics we're going to cover are sovereign zone arguments and right to refuse arguments. Yeah, so
2: just by way of introduction the phrase my body my choice is probably the most popular way to voice arguments from bodily autonomy Um, after all a woman should have absolute and total control over her own body and should be able to do anything she wants with it right well maybe not the problem with arguments from bodily autonomy is that they are only persuasive if a woman's right to control her own body is absolute meaning she can do whatever she wants with her own body regardless of how it affects other human beings, including killing her unborn child in the case of elective abortion. But this, I think, ends up being ultimately the fatal flaw of bodily autonomy arguments. Um, Bodily autonomy is not absolute, and I think each one of us realizes this when we stop and think about it. So first, a couple preliminary observations. First, bodily autonomy as being absolute is false on the face of it. Uh, a woman does not have the right to do whatever she wants with her own body and neither does a man. And we have plenty of laws which restrict our freedom in what we can do with our own bodies. For example, laws against assault and battery, murder, rape, uh, indecent exposure, etc. cetera. Um, I can't simply walk up to someone and punch them in the face and then say, well, I have a right to do whatever I want with my own body. Uh, so more to the point, Laws always restrict what we can and cannot do with our own bodies when what we are doing brings harm to another individual. And this is exactly what is happening in the case of abortion where the mother's decision not only brings harm to her unborn but kills them.
1: Yeah, and you know, I can't really think of any rights that we have which are absolute. Um, You know, pro-life people argue about a right to life, and the right to life isn't even absolute. Uh, For example, just because you have a right to life doesn't mean that someone would be wrong to kill you if you're threatening their own life. And so you have a right to take someone else's life if they're threatening yours. And so, yeah, I'm not not sure if there are any, any rights that are absolute. And, of course, an abortion choice advocate would argue that the right to bodily autonomy is absolute. But, of course, just like any other right, it's really not. And someone might come up with a counterexample. Well, what about the right not to be raped or the right not to be tortured? It seems that they have an absolute right not to be raped or tortured. And while that does seem to be the case, uh, the right not to be raped or tortured are grounded in more fundamental rights, the right to bodily autonomy. And so the right to bodily autonomy, of course, is not absolute, as you mentioned, Aaron, because as it has been rightly stated, my right to swing my fist ends where your nose begins. So not even the right to bodily autonomy is absolute. Yeah, those are great points. So, of course, when a woman tries to justify abortion and bodily autonomy, she often uses a a, a slogan where she says, my body, my choice. And so a woman might mean at least or one of at least four things when she says, my body, my choice. And a couple of these are real easy to, to dispatch. And so we could do that right now. And then a couple more require a little bit more uh, argumentation and engagement with it, and so we'll we'll talk about those in more detail. One thing uh, someone might mean by "my body, my choice," and this is one that I hear fairly re- regularly, is that she might be arguing that it's still in the womb; it's not even out in the world yet. And so this would be, if if we think back to our our sled episode, this would be the E in sled, the environment, that because it's it's differently located than we are, it's still in the womb. Uh, then it's it's not a, a person or it's not uh, something that's valuable. And of course, uh, as we talked about in the sled episode, where, uh, where you are does not determine what you are. And so the fetuses or the embryos still being in the womb doesn't determine its value. Another thing she might mean is that it's completely dependent on the mother, so she has the right to do what she wants with it. And again, if you think back to the slide episode, we talked about this in the section on the the D letter, which stands for degree of dependency. And so, of course, being dependent on somebody does not justify the person you're dependent on mistreating you or killing you. And so, in fact, we, we have a we have very strong intuition that the more dependent somebody is, the more of an obligation we have to help that person, not the less of an obligation. So that's another one that doesn't work. Now, two more things that a a woman might mean by my body, my choice might mean that she considers her body to be a sort of a sovereign zone meaning that similar to how we think of of countries with sovereign borders that a woman's body is a sovereign zone meaning that she has the right to do whatever she wants with anything in or on her body Another thing she might mean is that she has the right to refuse, meaning that she does not, uh, she should not be legally compelled to remain plugged in as life support for the unborn child. And now these two ideas, separating bodily rights into sovereign zone and right to refuse, uh, we we credit Trent Horn with coming up with this distinction. And that, that was one of his contributions to the pro-life movement, is coming up with this distinction to help us uh, clarify these two different ideas and to be able to address them convincingly and so uh, I had Trent Horn on the show um, actually he was the first interview I ever did and so if you want to hear more from Trent Horn I would encourage you to go back and listen to that interview that I did with him but Trent Horn is the one that we uh, credit with coming up with this distinction to help clarify uh, the the ability to think critically on this issue. So when we talk about the sovereign zone argument, this, again, is the idea that a woman has a right to do anything she wants with or to anything inside her body or to her body. And now, this is the stronger of the two claims. And since it makes such a strong claim, that makes it a weaker argument because being such a strong claim, it's a lot more difficult to justify. And so in order to show that this that this argument um, that this this sovereign zone position doesn't work, we can just bring up five different situations, each increasingly difficult to justify and so the first thing that we can say is that. If this sovereign zone idea is correct, then that means that all abortions would be permissible. So if a woman has a sex-selective abortion, she has an abortion because she's having a girl, but she wanted a boy, or a frivolous abortion, she's having an abortion because uh, because she's nine months pregnant, but she wants to fly overseas, or she wants to ride the, the roller coasters at Disneyland. So sex-selective abortions and frivolous abortions would be morally permissible. But one point of common ground that even many staunch abortion choice advocates have with pro-life advocates, is that we all agree that late-term abortions ought to be illegal, and certain abortions like sex-selective abortions and frivolous abortions ought to be illegal. And and so if this sovereign zone idea was correct, then these abortions would be permissible and we should allow them by law. And so most people won't bite this bullet, but there are some who will. And so for people who do bite this bullet, we have increasingly difficult to justify situations that we can raise as thought experiments. So the next one we can go to is talking about the, the uh, cancer treatment drug thalidomide to ease morning sickness.
2: Yeah, so... In the 1950s and 60s, a drug named thalidomide was prescribed to pregnant women to help treat nausea and insomnia. However, it was discovered later that thalidomide actually causes severe birth defects, uh, including being born with missing limbs. And so this drug is no longer legally available for women. So here's the question. How would we react to a woman today who illegally obtains thalidomide because she doesn't want to feel nauseous while pregnant? Uh, Is she doing something wrong, or is she simply exercising her right to bodily autonomy? Um, After all, if bodily autonomy is absolute, then how can you object to her actions? Uh, If she has the right to use lethal force to kill her unborn because of my body, my choice, why is it unreasonable to allow her to cause sublethal harm to her child by taking drugs to intentionally harm them? Uh, Although the unborn would be harmed he or she wouldn't be harmed as much as an elective abortion. Another example, along with thalidomide, that's often used is, is Accutane. Uh, many of you have heard of Accutane, or maybe even taken it, uh, which is used to treat acne. But Accutane is also known to cause a severe fatal injury and birth effects if women take it while they are pregnant. And so because of this, uh, the FDA actually requires women of childbearing age to be on two forms of contraception if they are sexually active. They also require uh, women to take two separate pregnancy tests prior to starting Accutane, and both tests must have negative results. Now these laws are obviously limiting what a woman can and cannot do with her own body. But knowing the effects that Accutane can have on the unborn, we consider these reasonable restrictions on bodily autonomy because we have the safety of the child in mind. So again, the question is, what would we think then of a pregnant woman who knew the potential for fetal deformity and birth defects, but ignored the law and continued taking Accutane because she wanted to avoid acne. Would we consider her a champion of women's rights, or is there something wrong with that? Now, if you say that there's something wrong with that, then you are already beginning to limit bodily autonomy. And I think it's important to mention that in all of these reasons that Clinton and I are going through, these counterexamples or these thought experiments... It only takes one of these to undermine the idea of absolute bodily autonomy. And also, I want to mention, if you're more interested in reading on the thalidomide and accutane, I know Rich Pappard uh, has an article where he's written more on that, where I've taken most of my information from. Yeah.
1: Isn't it amazing that we allow women to abort her child, but when it comes to uh, potentially creating wanted children, that suddenly we go to great lengths to uh, try and prevent them from being deformed or, or killed in the womb. Yeah, yeah, so we talked about thalidomide, uh, Take a woman taking thalidomide in order to ease her morning sickness. And so most people will say, well, no, it seems like she can't take thalidomide uh, to ease her morning sickness, even j- just with the foreseen possibility that the unborn might be deformed. But if someone then decides to bite that bullet again, we can we can move on now and say, okay, so this time she's not taking thalidomide to ease her morning sickness, but now she's taking thalidomide to intentionally damage her child. Suppose, for example, there is a woman who did take thalidomide and wound up with a deformed child, a, a child born without an arm or a leg or something, and everyone around her was giving her accolades and telling her what what a, a brave person she is for raising this child with special needs and she loves the accolades and attention so now she wants to do it again so she gets pregnant and now she's taking phalidomide to intentionally damage her child not to ease her morning sickness but to intentionally damage her child so that she can get all the praise and attention again should she now be permitted to do so And I think just about everybody at this point will recognize, will know that she doesn't have the right to intentionally damage her unborn child. And if she doesn't have the right to intentionally damage her unborn child, then the sovereign zone argument fails. Because if she doesn't have the right to damage her child, then she certainly doesn't have the right to kill her child, just based on the the fact that the child is in her body and she has the right to do whatever she wants with her body. But again, suppose someone does bite this bullet. Well, we can move on and talk about an art student from Yale named Eliza Schwartz, who alleges that she artificially inseminated herself several times, getting herself pregnant, and then intentionally aborted the child and then used the blood and fetal remains as an art project. Now, that's pretty gruesome, of course. And Yale later... Uh, later determined that she didn't do it, but Eliza Schwartz continues to allege that she did. Now, assuming that she did, was there anything morally wrong with what Schwartz did by intentionally aborting to use the fetal remains as an art project? Of course, we would say that, yeah, of course there's something wrong. But if they still continue to bite this bullet, then we can we can come up with one more real gruesome thought experiment to kind of push to see how far they're willing to take this. And uh, this comes from Timothy Brom of the Equal Rights Institute. And uh, my friend Josh, his, Tim's brother, has nicknamed this Tim's Really Dark Story. And so suppose uh, suppose there's a, a woman and a man who get who have sex and the woman gets pregnant, and the man is ecstatic about this, really loves the child, is really looking forward to having this child born and, and being able to do things with this child. But the, the mother of the child later finds out that this man has been having an affair. And, and so because the man really loves his child and is looking forward to this child, in order to take revenge on this man for having an affair she finds a sadistic doctor, a real, you know, Dr. No or uh, or Dr. Moreau type, who is willing to uh, to do whatever she, whatever this woman wants with this child. And so now this, this woman is intentionally torturing the child in the womb in order to get back at this man. Maybe she has him, uh, like I said, this is a really dark, gruesome story, but maybe she has him uh, intentionally uh, rip off a limb of this child uh, in order to torture this child to get back at, at, this man for having this affair and so the question is does the woman have the right to do this and by this point even the most hardened person should say no this is not permissible and if someone does bite this bullet then you're probably dealing with a sociopath and you should probably get away from this person for your own safety but yeah so all of these situations are designed to show that a woman really does not have a right to do anything she wants with anything inside her body just because it is her body and and so you can actually go onto the Equal Rights Institute website. Uh, I think the website is equalrightsinstitute.com and go onto their blog because Tim has written uh, an article about this in which he calls Autumn in the Sovereign Zone. And so he basically has constructed a story uh, about this to, to illustrate these points that I've been going across here. And so if you really want to, to read this in story form, you can go and check out Tim's article. So if the sovereign zone idea fails, well, that leaves now the right to refuse, which, is the, which makes a weaker claim than the sovereign zone argument, and so that makes it a stronger argument because it's easier to justify the right to refuse idea. So the right to refuse argument comes from, from the article A Defense of Abortion, written by abortion choice philosopher Judith Jarvis Thompson. And so Thompson devised a thought experiment regarding a famous violinist. She says, imagine there's an unconscious famous violinist, and you wake up one morning, and you're attached to this violinist by the kidney. You try to get up, but you can't because you're attached. Uh, the curator of the the curator of the hospital runs in and says, "Oh, great, you're awake. I'm terribly sorry about this. I would never have permitted it had I known. But this famous violinist here is suffering from a fatal kidney ailment, and he will die. The Society of Music Lovers has canvassed all available." uh, potential donors and found that you're the only match. So they kidnapped you and they plugged you into this violinist so that he could use your kidneys to help filter his blood. Uh, but no worries. It's only for, you only need to be attached for nine months and then we can detach you and you can be on your way. Now I'd love to unplug you, but unfortunately that would kill the violinist and violinists are people too. So I can't justify unplugging you from this violinist. And so Thompson's argument from this thought experiment is essentially that that even if you have a moral obligation to remain plugged into this violinist, you should not be legally compelled to remain plugged into this violinist. And so you can kind of see how Thompson is trying to make this situation as analogous to pregnancy as possible. Now, the right to refuse argument seems powerful on the surface, but it's really subject to many counterexamples. And so it ends up being... A false analogy because it doesn't accurately analogize this or analogize the situation in pregnancy. So, we'll just kind of go over some of the objections here one by one. Now, John T. Wilcox, uh, no relation as far as I'm aware, objects to this thought experiment by saying that this this situation is weird, and he says that uh, to philosophers, weird is a technical term, and he says that we're dealing here with A situation that could never happen a situation in which a person is kidnapped and plugged into a violinist uh, by the kidneys in order to help filter his blood this situation is a situation that could never happen Uh, and and so it makes it a very very rare situation and but pregnancy is a very common situation in that it's how we all enter life every time a a woman has sex she, she risks getting pregnant and so this situation, a situation uh, of a natural situation in which a woman gets pregnant, the uh, the intuitions and her obligations might be different than in the situation of the violinist, which is a rare situation and a situation that could never really possibly happen. So it could be that that our obligations are different in each situation and that even if the law would not be justified in forcing you to remain plugged into the violinist, it doesn't follow then that the, that the law should not force you to, remain plugged into an unborn child. And now, of course, uh, philosopher David Boonin would come along and say, well, you can't just object to a thought experiment because it's weird. After all, if we think of the common trolley uh, experiment in which a trolley is heading down a track toward five people but you could flip the switch and have it just kill one person and thereby saving those five people what do you do do you flip the switch or do you or do you allow it to hit the five people because you can't justify uh killing the one person to save the five if we imagine that this trolley is powered by a uranium engine that's smaller than uh, than a peanut well that be- now becomes a weird thought experiment but that doesn't but but that that doesn't justify us dismissing the thought experiment but the problem with bundin's Boudin, objection though is that though the weirdness that he adds to the trolley experiment doesn't uh doesn't change our intuitions whereas uh wilcox's Objection is that the weirdness of the thought experiment does, in fact, affect our uh, our intuitions in this case. And so so Boonin's response to Wilcox's objection doesn't get at the heart of what Wilcox's objection actually is. And I think that Wilcox's objection is at least plausible. Yeah, now Trent Horn and Tony George, who are two pro-life advocates, I'm not very familiar with Tony George, but, of course, uh, Trent Horn I mention fairly often. But they... Uh, they basically came to the realization that the the problem that one of the problems with the violinist objection is that it's all about the perspective in the case of the violinist uh the person is plugged in you're you're supposed to identify with the pregnant woman but uh what's really going on though is that we should be looking at this from the perspective of the unborn child and so they actually changed the violinist scenario to um, to argue it from the perspective of the unborn child and so their their thought experiment is called the reverse violinist and so they say that and so so their thought experiment says okay so imagine that you wake up in the hospital And you look around, and you realize that you're attached at the kidneys to this violinist, and you think, you know what? I didn't ask for this. I don't have to remain plugged in. So you unplug yourself, and you get up, and as you're walking toward the door, suddenly you start to feel weak, and the curator runs in and says... Quick, plug yourself back in, or, or you're going to die. So you, you, you crawl back to the table, the curator helps you, and you plug back into the violinist, and you start feeling stronger again. And so the curator says, I'm terribly sorry about this, but this violinist is a member of the Society of Musical Pranksters, and every now and then they, they find a victim, and they plug him into the violinist. And, uh, and unfortunately, this plugging in means that you must remain plugged into him, otherwise you'll die. Uh, and so you can't unplug under any circumstances. So now, you're, so now a few hours later, uh, it's nighttime, you're asleep, and the violinist wakes up and says, you know what? I don't have to remain plugged into this person. Uh, my body, my choice. I have no obligation to remain plugged into his life support. So he unplugs from you, and then he leaves, leaving you to die. So now we see that this situation is more analogous to the the unborn child. It allows us to see it from the perspective of the unborn child, that the violinist is responsible for the situation which he's placed you in. And so it seems that he does have an obligation to remain plugged into you because he's responsible for the situation that will kill you. And so that's the reverse violinist situation. Now, there are several disanalogies between the violinist scenario and pregnancy, which we'll uh, we'll just cover uh, three of the most important ones. So the first one is the parent versus stranger objection. And so this objection is basically the objection that, uh, in the case of the violinist, you're plugged into a complete stranger, whereas in the case of pregnancy, it's a parent-child situation.
2: With the parent-stranger objection, We may not have the obligation to sustain strangers who are unnaturally plugged into us, but we do have a duty to sustain our own offspring. And so the problem is that Thompson assumes that a mother has no more duty to her her own offspring than she does a total stranger. But again, I think most of us have this natural intuition that we do have duties, more duties uh, to our offspring than total strangers. In fact, this is often reflected in our laws.
1: Right. And yeah, that's actually one of the one of the reasons that I, I take Thompson's analogy to be so um well not just well, it's counterintuitive, but it's not just counterintuitive, but it's absurd because her argument literally does rest on the assumption that a that a parent does not have natural obligations to her child. In her essay, A defense of abortion, she talks about how a parent doesn't have special obligations to her offspring. She only has obligations if she assumes those obligations. So if she Gives birth to the child and then takes the child home, she has implicitly assumed those obligations. But there are a couple of problems with that, in that, number one, it seems that her implicit obligation is not due to the fact that she took the child home, but it's due to the fact that she had sex and engaged in an act which resulted in the creation of a naturally needy child. By willfully engaging in that act and we'll talk about this a little bit later later on down the road too, um, by willfully engaging in that act, she implicitly assumes the responsibility of caring for the child because she engaged in the act that brought the child into existence. The second problem is that if you're just going to say that well, uh, the second problem is that it's not obvious that simply taking the child home will uh will grant her that obligation because as some pro-life philosophers like Patrick Lee has said, you know, what about a woman who was never able to obtain an abortion such as a woman who couldn't afford one or what about a woman who just didn't know that she was pregnant? You know, we we have those television shows uh on, you know, like the learning channel or whatever, I didn't know I was pregnant. So, uh just so it's so why is it then that just taking a, the child home grants that obligation because what if a woman just didn't know she was pregnant or couldn't afford to have an abortion so it seems that Thompson's argument doesn't justify the special obligation it seems more reasonable to to place the special obligation in the fact that she engaged in the in the act of reproduction by having sex so the second disanalogy is the direct killing versus indirect killing distinction. When, you, when we talk about the violinist, if you unplug from the violinist, now I should probably state beforehand that my intuition in the violinist case is I think you actually do have a moral obligation to remain plugged in. Uh, I'm not sure if that should translate into a legal obligation, but again, the violinist case is not analogous to the to the case of pregnancy. But I think you do have a moral obligation to remain plugged in. But even if you don't remain plugged in, if you unplug from the violinist, then you are not directly re- you are not directly killing the violinist. You're not the the active agent in the violinist's death. His underlying pathology of the kidney ailment is what kills him. But in the case of abortion, you are directly killing the unborn fetus or embryo, and so in that case, that's a analogy between the two situations also
2: yeah thompson tries to justify abortion as merely the withholding of support and she tries to make this parallel between the two situations but abortion is not merely the withholding of support it's it's killing the unborn through dismemberment or poisoning or crushing so even if we grant for sake of argument that that we are allowed to withhold support from the violinist uh, that's different than actively killing them Uh, As Beckwith has pointed out in his book, euphemistically calling abortion the withholding of support makes about as much sense as calling suffocating someone with a pillow the withdrawing of oxygen.
1: Right. And in fact, Thompson even talks about in her essay that if you had to, to directly kill the violinist in order to unplug from him, that would not be permissible. And so she would argue that if you can remove the unborn child by a nonviolent means that would be preferable but unfortunately killing the child is the only way to remove the child and so and so because of that it's permissible but that again is specious reasoning because for example if i if i lived in kansas and i was in the middle of a tornado and i had someone in my storm shelter with me that i that i suddenly uh that we suddenly started arguing or something and i wanted him to leave i could not kick him out of my uh, of my storm shelter in the middle of that tornado, I would have to wait until it's safe to have him removed in order to remove him. Uh, or if I was out at sea on a boat and I suddenly discovered a stowaway, I could not then um, cast him overboard uh, to to drown or to be eaten by sharks or something. I would have to get him back to the safety of, of of land in order to eject him from my boat. And so if killing someone is the only way to remove them from your body then it is not permissible to remove them you you have to wait until you can get them to safety so you have to so in that case you would have to give birth to the child and then uh give the child to a family for adoption or something and then the final disanalogy that we're going to look at is the responsibility objection. And I, I touched on this a little bit earlier in that the the woman and the man of course, but in this case we're just focusing on the woman cuz she's the one who gets pregnant and would go in for an abortion, but the man also has responsibility. This, you know, not uh let's not uh overlook that as well. But the woman engages willfully engages in a in a in an act that results in her being pregnant. Since she willfully engages in that act, she has a responsibility to care for the child that results. And so she has that implicit responsibility, the, obli- the special obligation to the child because she engages in that act. So she engages in an act, the act of sex, that results in the creation of a naturally needy child. But you are not responsible for the situation that the violinist is in. You're not responsible for his kidney ailment. So you have no special responsibility to the violinist. Now, of course, the responsibility objection holds in most cases, uh, the vast majority of cases, but it doesn't hold in the case of rape. Now, Thompson actually seems to agree that her argument, the violinist argument, only works in the case of rape also. But she tries to argue that because we don't judge what is ethical or what is right based on how difficult a situation is, that if the if abortion is permissible in the case of rape, it should be permissible in all situations. But of course, that's specious reasoning because you can't just uh, make a general law or a general rule based on a special case. That As Scott Klusendorf says that would be like uh, making speeding illegal because once in a while someone may need to speed to rush a loved one to the hospital. So what do we do in the case of rape then when the responsibility objection doesn't hold? Well, there are a couple of, of ways to respond because I personally feel that abortion is not permissible in the case of rape. And uh, I believe uh, Aaron feels the same way. And we, we had a show on the case of rape earlier. And so we're not going to talk much about it here. If you If you're interested in a more detailed discussion on the case of rape, then I would encourage you to go back and listen to that episode. But when we talk about the right to refuse in the case of rape, uh, abortion is still not permissible because, number one, the uh, direct killing objections still hold. In this case, you are directly killing a human being. And since you have to directly kill a human being to remove the human being from the woman's womb, then it's not permissible. If there ever comes a time in which um, uh, artificial womb technology becomes a reality then if the unborn child could be safely removed from the uh, from the woman's uterus then i think uh, aborting the pregnancy would be permissible because you don't have to kill the child in order to abort the pregnancy. And so all you would be doing is you would be removing the child from the from the woman's uterus who didn't ask for the child to be there and uh, putting the child in an environment in which he could survive and continue to thrive and grow. So in that case, I, I think it would probably be permissible uh, because you don't have to kill the child. But since artificial womb technology is not a current reality it seems that it's still impermissible to have the abortion because you have to directly kill the unborn child, but it seems that we still have obligations to people even if we're not responsible for their situation. Now, Rich Papard has come up with a thought experiment and so has uh, Stephen Wagner of Justice for All with the Justice for All philosophy team. And their situations are similar, but Stephen Wagner and the JFA team went into a lot greater detail. And so if you're interested in reading their full argument, their full thought experiment and argument, Their pa- the paper they wrote is called De Facto Guardian and Abortion, a Response to the Strongest Violinist. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Uh, but essentially, uh, Rich Pappard and Steve Wagner came up with similar thought experiments in that, imagine, you know just, just imagine that a woman is uh, caught in a blizzard uh, up in a log cabin somewhere. And for whatever reason, um, she she encounters uh, a, a, an infant that uh, that no one is around to care for. Now, of course, Steve Wagner uh, Steve Wagner at all go uh, in a slightly different direction with this. So this is just kind of a, a nutshell look at, at this thought experiment. But if she has an infant there that no one else is around to care for, then the question becomes: uh, She didn't ask. For the situation, she didn't ask to have an infant there or to be the only one around who can care for that infant. but now the question becomes, does she have a moral obligation to care to care for the infant and should she have a legal obligation that if she doesn't care for the infant and uh, and the infant dies, should she then be be prosecuted for that should she be held legally accountable for that and I think Uh, I think she should. And I think that a lot of people would would say that she should be held legally accountable for it because she was, even though she didn't ask for the situation, she was the only one around who was able to provide care for that child. Even if there was no formula and she had to breastfeed because she was lactating, um, it seems like she still has an obligation to use her body to care for that child. And so uh, even if she didn't ask for the situation, even though the responsibility objection doesn't hold uh, in that situation, I think she still has an obligation to that child. And so just to recap briefly that, um, that since she has to directly kill the child, abortion in the case of rape is not permissible, and I think people still have obligations to each other, even if they don't ask for them. So the main points that we talked about were the sovereign zone and right to refuse arguments. Uh, and so we talked about bodily rights arguments as a whole. So I'd like to thank you for listening. We're going to be drawing here to a close, and I'd like to uh, thank Aaron for joining me again uh, to discuss this issue.
2: No, thanks for having me, Clinton.
1: Yeah, of course. Uh, if you appreciated this information, we would ask you to share it around social media, Facebook, Twitter, wherever you frequent, and rate and review us on our Facebook page and on Twitter, or uh, on uh, iTunes, rather. Uh, Now, this is a weekly podcast, and it takes a lot of work to put together a podcast each week on top of all the other work that I do in the pro-life movement. As Greg Cunningham of Center for Bioethical Reform says, there are more people working full-time to kill unborn babies than there are people working full-time to save them. I subsist off of donations from financial supporters. People like you keep me being able to do the work that I do. If you like what we're doing with this podcast and would like to support my work as a full-time... Pro-Life Advocate, you can go to www.prolifetraining.com and click on Donate in the menu on the top. You can give a one-time gift or you can give a monthly gift. Uh, Just be sure to put my name in the notes section so that Life Training Institute knows to put your donation into my account, and donations are also tax-deductible. So next week, we're going to be talking about Judith Jarvis Thompson's essay, A Defense of Abortion, and we're going to go into more detail because she does talk about the violinist in that article, but she also gives some other arguments for her position. So with that, on behalf of Aaron, I'd like to thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.